All right, are we ready for the Word of God? All right, last week we were supposed to have a message entitled Brilliant Moments, Part 1. And what we got into was we covered my text verse, John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. We got there and the Holy Spirit kind of arrested everything from that point forward. And I was came into the sound booth this morning and I happened to look at the CDs that were laying out on the, the banister there of the sound booth. And I realized that last week's message was Brilliant Moments, Part 1. That was kind of a prequel last week. But we're going to leave that and call that Brilliant Moments time uh, uh, Part 1. Today is supposed to be Brilliant Moments Part 2. So we're going to call it Part 2, and next week will be Part 3, despite the fact that it was supposed to be Part 2. When God moves, God moves, and we say, yes, sir. And so with that said, that's what we're doing. Last week, like I said, we talked about John 14, verses 12 through 14. Let's read that, that verse, those verses. It says, Verily, or very truly, I just went King James on everybody. Did you all catch that? Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because, because I am going to the Father. That because is the ascension. We recognize the fact that elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that the Holy Spirit is going to be there uh, and, and occupy the church at this point. And so the, the chapter or that, those te- that text goes on and says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That was last week's whole entire message, and praise God for it. Um, And we covered a great deal. We're going to touch on a couple of those things as we move through today's message again, but we're going to go in a, in a, we're going to extend this message further out. Now here we are with the word of the Lord telling us that whoever believes in me, of course we know that this, these three verses have two facets to it, faith and motive. Faith, those who believe in me. Motive, um, because it talks about glorifying the Father here in verse 13. So, whatever we're asking for, we do so in faith. But our motives have to be right, and those motives have to be motives that are for the purpose of glorifying God, not increasing our bank account, not getting new this, that, or the other, etc., etc., etc. If this is going to be a matter of prayer, if this is going to be a matter of something that you categorically look at the Lord for, it needs to be glorifying Him. Now, if you've got the means to go buy another car, have at it. There's nothing against that. If you want to remodel your house, get a new house, good for you. Have fun with that. But if we're going to ask God for a thing, 
It needs to be for His glory. Amen? And if we're expecting it to actually happen, like my wife's health be utterly turned around, then we better believe for it. Amen? So, this is what we've got. If you, you're going to be able to do the things I do, and let me add to that, Jesus said, you're going to be able to do greater things than that. Whatever you ask in my name, you get. You can ask anything in my name, and I'm going to do it for you. That's inspired Scripture. And yet, this is part of what we talked about early last week, despite all this, I think it's safe. I don't have any scientific measurements for this. But I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of Christians don't so much as see in their personal lives the works that He did, much less greater works than these. As a hush falls over the crowd. Ask yourself this question. He said, if you believe you're going to do these works and greater works than these, ask for them. Just ask. So that he might be glorified, ask. How many of you are seeing that become manifest in your life? Be honest. You know how many hands I just saw? Because they were a little sheepish. They're kind of like half hands. Three. Three hands. Now, this isn't an indictment. This isn't a scolding. That we're, that, that's not the business we're in. This is a let's figure out the issue. Yes? Okay. Okay. But isn't it a bit perplexing that the body of Christ, who at that time was just the body of Christ, there wasn't any denominational divisions. Okay? This was just the body. Okay? And it hadn't even been formed into a church yet. That happens in Acts chapter 2. This is just believers. He's telling us this. And yet, we don't see these things that he did, much less greater things. Greater, as I talked about last week, in the Greek means, among other things, larger. Okay? Isn't that perplexing? Does that perplex anybody besides me? Okay, I'm the only one perplexed this morning. Am I? I'm it. Okay, so I'm perplexed. Everybody else here is going, I know the answer. That leaves me asking the $64,000 questions. I say questions because there's two of them. That's $128,000 worth of questions. These are the questions. One, what exactly were the works that he did that he said we're going to do? And two, What's greater, what's larger than those? Those are your two questions. Okay, let's, let's just delve into this. The first question, the answer to the first question, what works did he do? Well, let's be frank. That's obvious, right? The works that he did are obvious. Any and all of the things he did to manifest the power of God, to subsequently glorify God as a result, and because He was doing it, 
he himself was glorified during his early ministry. Any of that stuff, that's the stuff he did. Brief examples, restoring blind eyes, making the lame walk, delivering the possessed from unclean spirits, raising people from the dead, etc., etc., ad infinitum. It went on and on. As a matter of fact, it went on and on to the degree that John chapter 21 tells us this. I mentioned this two weeks ago. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So, He did these kinds of things again and again and again in the same way forever. And that's what He did. So, that answers what he said in terms of what is it or that you will do the works I've done. If you believe, you, that answers that. So, the second question though, what is greater, the larger? What is larger? What is greater than those works? The answer to that question is found when we look at him when we look at His life, when we look at His actions, we look at the works that He did. What was the catalyst for what He did? What was the catalyst for what He did? Now, you're thinking, okay, you got a little fuzzy. A catalyst is simply this. A catalyst, by definition, is something that precipitates an event. Okay, everybody get that? A catalyst is the thing that precipitates something that precipitates an event. Now, when something is precipitated, now this is really important to understand what actually historically happened in the New Testament. When something is precipitated, it means something happened suddenly and unexpectedly. Okay? So the question is, what was that catalyst? What happened suddenly and unexpectedly that catapulted Jesus into the forefront of New Testament ministry? Besides the fact that He was God. Don't anybody go there. I get that part. I want to give you an illustration, and I wish I had thought of this in time. I would put one of those YouTube videos up and you'd see it. How many of you have ever seen a YouTube video? Or maybe you have done this yourself. Or you've seen someone else do it. Take a two-liter bottle of soda. Open it and dump a bunch of Mentos in it. How many of you have ever seen what happens there? Okay, it's explosive. Mentos make that thing go absolutely stark raving nuts in a vertical fashion. That soda turns into something that is raw rocket fuel and it shoots straight into the air. And you'd better be running when it happens because you're going to get oh so sweet. Imagine, imagine biblical life being the soda. This is how it's gone on. 
the soda. This is it. This is the Old Testament, the soda. The soda is the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The soda is those handful of years where we find out that John the Baptist has been conceived and before he is born and grows into a public minister. That's the soda. Jesus isn't the Mentos. Jesus is the wrapper for the Mentos. Okay? Is everybody getting it? What happened, what did Jesus do to dump the contents of the divine into regular life? What did He do? What was the catalyst? What precipitated an event that suddenly and unexpectedly happened in this world. There's only one thing that precipitated the works that Jesus performed in this life. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think about five of you said amen to that out of sheer obligation. I bet you this is one of those times I'm supposed Amen. Amen. The rest of you are going, huh? Don't have any idea what in the world I'm talking about. The, 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 the unexpected and sudden event that was thrust upon the world was the gospel through Jesus Christ. This is the world, your soda. Jesus comes in holding the message of the gospel inside his wrapper, and when he dumps it into the world, something sudden and unexpected happens. What was it? It was the fact that God <coughs> is suddenly no longer at arm's length, he's no longer distant. He's no longer far away. God is with us. His name is God with us. Emmanuel, come unto me, those who are weak and heaven laden. He says, and I will give you rest. That message changed the course of history. Before, it's all been the law. The law can be summarized in this. You do good, and I'll bless you. That's God. That's the law. You do good, and I'll bless you. When Jesus suddenly and unexpectedly dumped the mentos of the gospel into the soda of life on planet earth, Suddenly, that changed, and it was this new message. This message is this. I have blessed you. Now, do good. That's the Word of God. There lies the catalyst. You see, we have to understand something. Jesus, for Jesus, preaching and teaching the Gospel. Now remember, we're still talking about John fourteen twelve through 14 what I've done, you're going to do if you believe in greater things than these. We're still talking about that. 
Jesus, for Jesus, preaching and teaching the gospel was the catalyst. It was the thing that precipitated a sudden and unexpected event. The gospel was that thing. Because the world had never heard this. Except for one little moment in time where the world could look back into the writings of Moses and he, they could say, well, isn't that interesting? But they never ever heard it and never connected because they weren't spiritually enlightened enough to recognize that in Genesis 3 and 15, what theologists call, or theologians call, the proto-evangelium, the first evangelistic message. He said, you may bruise, I'm going to crush your head. God, standing in the garden with two naked people doing this, and a serpent over there going, what? He said, I'm going to crush your head. You may bruise my heel, but I'm going to get over the heel. You ain't getting over the crushed head. That was the first nuance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was it. Preaching and teaching was this catalyst that thrust something sudden and unexpected into the forefront. It was the thing that prompted all the works He did. So in order to understand, if you believe you'll do these works and greater than these, all you have to do is ask, and we're going to glorify God in them. In order to understand that, we have to understand. Anybody who wants to run around doing miracles sands the, the gospel. Not incorporating the gospel, they're not of God. It was the thing that prompted his works. He would preach, and where there was faith, he would allow the power of God to manifest through him and perform the miraculous. He would, did you hear what I said? This is the equation we've got to get in our heads. He would preach. And where there was faith, the power of God would flow through him and miraculous things would manifest. That's the equation. Remember in John 14 and 12 where it says, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. Please understand, those works... That doesn't relegate His works only to performing the miraculous. Okay? Keeping in mind, this is Jesus' way of making a living. He preaches. Works does not relegate, uh, or does not just determine that works means miracles. Works is first and foremost included in his preaching and teaching ministry. That's what he did. He went out. Remember last week when I said maybe he's just trying to teach us how to surrender our life over to his will? Do you remember that? It was passing. It was late in the sermon. But here's the thing. Do you think preaching and teaching is an easy thing to do? I promise you, 
My, my, my uh, son this morning said, said it's something about how every day or every time I come up here, I burn a few calories. I don't burn enough calories, but I burn some calories. Why? Because this is not easy work. It's not easy work. Getting ready for this is not easy work. Why? Because I just don't assemble a group of words in hopes that I'm communicating them correctly to you so you go, oh, that was good. No, 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 no. I am responsible, as is everyone who does this, not even for a living, but in their living. You have to hear the, the mind of God. This isn't just a topic that I assembled academically in order to properly educate you. It has nothing to do with it. This has to do with whether or not lives are permanently altered for God. That's what this is. So, if we look at this, we recognize the fact that works isn't just the things where he laid hands on and called people out of dead place and cast out. It's not. It's preaching. The word works here in the Greek. The word works means to toil as an effort or an occupation. Preaching and teaching was Jesus' occupation here on earth. Ultimately resulting in the fulfillment of of that message that he preached because he lived, died, buried, rose again, ascended to heaven. Fulfilled. Because you can't preach the good news unless you have someone who has fulfilled it. Well, he did that. Right? Okay. He said about himself that he came to give life. He said about himself that he came to set captives free, etc., etc. He is the one who is the embodiment of the gospel. So how does he give life? How does he set people free? Scripture says that faith comes by what? Hearing the Word of God. So if, if we're going to do the works he did and do greater than him, then I think we need to be in the business of less just laying on of hands and a whole lot more testifying about things that give people faith to believe in the One who can manifest the miraculous in their lives. That's what He did. And I know we can just go, yeah, but He was God. No! You can't do that. We need to understand that miracles weren't then and aren't now stand-alone events. They were, they were accompanied by the proclamation of the good news, or at least by individuals who were in the practice of sharing the gospel. Okay? And this is like, like a little word picture. Like a piano accompanies a diva. Miracles accompanied his preaching. You get it? Like a piano accompanied a diva. Accompanies a diva. Miracles accompany his preaching. You see, when Jesus appeared on the scene, when he suddenly showed up on the scene, 
there was something happening uh, in the kingdom of God. There was a massive paradigm shift. That thing that was normal, the paradigm, the expected norm, that was all shifting when he arrived. It was shifting from the Old Testament law to the New Testament dispensation of grace. That dispensation, with the entrance of the preaching of the gospel, that was the suddenly and the unexpectedly. That's what happened. And that shift, that tectonic dispensational shift, had to be accompanied by something that would say, keep this in mind, look, these things, the miracles, prove that what I'm saying, the gospel, is true. You see, you don't walk around saying that I've come to fulfill the law and this is the new way of doing anything, everything without getting stoned. And I don't mean drinking too much or smoking too much pot. You begin to do... Why do you think that Jesus had so much trouble with the religious elite? They were annoyed with Him, number one, because He threatened their position, but number two, because He was saying things that went against their job description. And they didn't like it because this shift was happening. This shift was sudden and unexpected. But the Savior shows up and says, preaches the gospel, and then He touches people and feeds multitudes and so on and so forth, and people are going, whoa, 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 whoa. That is really cool. I'm following Him. Why? Because those boneheads over at the temple, those are a bunch of corrupt people who aren't doing jack squat for me. I'm following Him. Well, how did He do that? Well, He would tell them this thing that would give them hope. Then He would prove that Word by touching people's lives physically. Everybody got, got that? I mean, you don't. You don't just transition from, uh, from Sinai to Calvary and everyone just shrug their shoulders and go, okay, let's go this way now. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't do that. Getting a Jew to just go, okay, and walk out, it's like trying to convert a Catholic. Right here, that family. This one right here, Catholics, former Catholics. Trust me, so steeped in tradition, so steeped in it, you don't just get a Catholic to move. It's kind of like trying to get a Baptist out of the Baptist church. It's the same thing. You don't just say something and go, oh, okay, that must be it. No. Jesus went about preaching the gospel, saying these things, but He substantiated them by showing that God was here and people, the Bible says it, were amazed because they'd never seen such authority. This is how it worked. Jesus, let, let me give you an example of this. How, how this shift said, look, these things prove that what I'm saying is true. Listen to this. This is going to be uh, out of Matthew chapter 9. 
Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, there's that faith thing. You believe. He said to the man, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. That statement, that's the gospel. Okay? Moving right along. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. I'm just going to deviate right here. I can't help it. When I hear words like this fellow, all I can think of is that the teachers of the law speak like this. This fellow. I'm sorry I had to go there. Squirrel. Okay? Moving right along. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier? This is a great question. Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up and walk. That's a great question. Of course it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because at that state, I can go pat, 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 turn around and walk away, and nothing is demanded of me. But if I say, get up and walk, somebody better be getting up and walking. Or, I'm a liar. There's no power. So which one's easier? But I want you, Jesus saying this, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know this, all of you with the evil thoughts in your hearts. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. That's the miracle. What did it do? It was followed by the God. It was follow, it followed the gospel. Then the man got up and went home. Can you imagine those religious leaders like they're like? When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. The manifest power of God in the form of miracles substantiated. It gave credibility. It gave validity to Jesus' claims that God was no longer at a distance, but that He was indeed with us. And that righteousness and salvation wasn't achieved by the works of the law. It was achieved by faith. So, the catalyst for the works He did was the proclamation of the Gospel. And it is the preaching of that same Gospel that should be the catalyst for us to do even greater things than these. In light of all of that that I just said, in light of all of it, notice with me that Jesus' final instructions to the church before His ascension was not simply to run around performing miracles. I'll take an amen, just for kicks and giggles. But rather, His last and final instructions were to preach the good news of the Gospel. There is, now hear me, I know we dig when God shows up and God shows out and people get touched and people get filled and people get healed and slain out in the Spirit. We dig that stuff, man. I know. I know I've been raised in this. But ladies and gentlemen, there is no greater work in the kingdom of God. No greater work than to preach the good news. 
Do you realize you can do all the miracles you want? You can do every one of them that you want. But someone isn't going to get converted by a miracle. They're going to get converted by the Word. They're going to get converted by the Word. In so doing, a lost and sinful person is eternally rescued from an eternity in the absence of God. You know, people people loved it in the Bible. They, they, they thronged Him. Follow, Jesus was the first pastor of a megachurch. He was it. He was the first one. A lot of those people followed Him because, man, I'm going to be honest with you, and this is going to sound really tacky. Man, there was a show to be seen. This is awesome. Did you see what he did? I got free lunch the other day. How do I know that some of them weren't actually established and bought in? Because he, he spoke of, of the blood, the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ and consuming it. And what, what did it say? The Bible said that, some, that many of his disciples left him. They left. They couldn't handle that. They weren't bought into the gospel. And so they left. There is no greater work than to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. When you preach, lost, undone, sinful people are converted into an eternal status with God. Standing in righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, here's the thing. You don't do that, and people are lost forever, irretrievably lost, and they go to hell. You and I were both in those shoes at one time. Every one of us. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, uh, or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's be honest. In writing this letter, Paul was anything but politically correct. And this is what he says after he gets done with that descriptive list. And such were some of you. Amen. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the thing. We get that, right? But that's not part of our living. We don't live like such were some of us. Because... If we did, we would fully grasp the gravity of what it means to have been damned and heading for a devil's hell. 
And since we have been justified, sanctified, and saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be thinking, okay, I need to tell somebody about this. I need to live in such a way where someone might just scratch their head and say, what is with that person? They don't act like everybody else. Their meal was wrong, and they took it anyway and still tipped the waitress. I'm going to be honest with you. Totally honest. I'm still working on me. You ever hear that song? He's still working on me. Okay. Well, let me tell you something. He's still working on me. Because I don't have a problem with getting the wrong food. I have a problem with people who keep me from getting to the wrong food in traffic. I want to give you a story, but it's just too late. The bottom line is, whether he's working on you or whether he's finished with you, and if, you're, and if he's finished with you, um, you might want to apply for my job. I don't know. The thing is, is that he's changed us because such were some of us. And yet we're changed. The Great Commission focuses on spreading the good news. The power of God is made manifest after the gospel is preached or is being preached in order to substantiate the claims of the gospel. Why has the church lost so much credibility in this day and age? Is it just because sin has made itself so much more prevalent? Or is it because the church might not be quite attuned to their job description as of right now? Because the Bible tells us that where darkness abounds, grace does much more abound. So it's not the kingdom's fault. Maybe it's the occupants of the kingdom that need a little adjustment. Mark 16, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's the first thing out of the box. That's the first rattle out of the box. He said, all power is given unto me on heaven, in heaven and earth. All of it. I've got it all. Therefore, go and preach the good news. Those were his instructions to the church. In verses 17 through 20 of Mark 16, it goes on to say uh, what we can expect as a result of following those instructions in the 15th verse. Go into all the world and preach. These are what we can expect. And these signs will accompany those who believe. It's assumed, it's assumed that if you believe, you preach. It's assumed on the part of the kingdom of God. My children believe, therefore they will preach. Now don't get hung up on the word preach. Testify if you want it. Live your life before men in such a way that they see God. And when you have an opportunity, I don't remember who said it, Live your life before men so that they may see God and speak occasionally. 
I don't remember who said it. Martin Luther, somebody, somebody very important. Anyway, the bottom line is, is live in such a way that when you speak, people go, well, that makes sense. Not live in such a way that when you speak, people go, they're a hypocrite. You went in the same way Jesus could not just tell people, move from Sinai now that Calvary's here. He didn't do it. In the same way He didn't do it, you and I can't either. Live in such a way that when you open your mouth on behalf of Jesus Christ, people say, that makes sense. In my name, they will. Remember John 14? If you believe, you will do these works that I was doing. And you will do greater works than these. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. The church anymore is more afraid of demons than anything. I don't understand that. Why? They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And they will drink deadly poison. And it will not hurt them. At all. Notice that? At all. They will place their hands on on sick people. And they will get well. After the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, He was taken up into heaven and He sat at the right hand of God. Remember, all power has been given unto me. So He's seated at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed His Word by the signs that accompanied it. We need to get back into the habit of one living like we mean it. So that when we do speak, they'll believe it. Then, if there is something needed in the form of manifestation of the power of God, hide and watch. Stand with me.